Well, good evening. I'm Carla Hayden. My official title is the CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. But tonight, I am all smiles and grinning because I started out as a children's librarian in Chicago, Illinois. And some may think this is a conspiracy that we have the national Maurice Sendak exhibit here. But actually, no. But welcome, because this is truly, truly a magical evening. And tonight, like Max said in the book, let the wild rumpus begin. Because we hope that you, the people who are here tonight, who made it possible, and also hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of young people through the next few months will feel their inner wild thing come out. We even made sure there was a decal with Max in his suit over administrative services and offices to let everybody know that this is where it happens. For a year, we have been very excited about this day coming. When we learned about the exhibit and the fact that we might have an opportunity to get this nationally acclaimed exhibit here at the Pratt Library, we thought this would be perfect as we prepare for a rather major renovation and restoration of this building, where things might not look quite as magical as tonight. And so this is a fitting way to start. This exhibit is special because the books of Maurice Sendak, as you know, have touched so many children and many of us right here, from where the wild things are to Little Bear, Really Rosie, and The Night Kitchen, many of these books have been read to children who are now reading the same books to their children and their grandchildren. His work has helped raise generations of children across the globe to think about their imaginations, and it's been shared with thousands of teachers and librarians. So tonight, I am honored to officially open the Maury Sendak Memorial Exhibition, 50 Years, 50 Works, and 50 Reasons, here at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You may clap. Now, here's the really great part. Because this exhibition would not have been possible without the generosity of the William G. Baker Memorial Fund. I want you all to give your thanks and join us in thanking Melissa Warlow, who is here with her grandchild, Sam, who kind of tested out the boat. Thank you, Melissa, for your vision, for your courage, and for your, really, insight in knowing that bringing this exhibit for free to Baltimore, hopefully, and we know it will, make such a difference. So thank you, Melissa. Now, here's the other part why we're really excited, because this is like a real exhibit. We have, tonight, the director of the Walters Art Museum here, Miss Julia, stand up. We have, and in the midst of what we all know, and I think the date is November 3rd, the... 23rd. Okay, she's like, please, give me a few more weeks. 
Miss Doreen Bulger, who in the midst of getting ready for the grand reopening and everything of the Baltimore Museum of Art, not only is she here tonight, she made sure that that wonderful sculpture that you see on the second floor had an exhibit case. They didn't send it with the exhibit. So thank you, Doreen. And then, if that wasn't enough art for you, Sammy and the MICA students are here. They have exhibited and made 50 special renditions, really, and interpretations of Maurice Sendak's work. So we thank you, and so we think that the arts in Baltimore are alive tonight. Now, since 1963, more than 22 million copies of Where the Wild Things Are have been sold. And as you know, this book presents a real child with real temper tantrums and a fierce imagination, and that's probably why so many children and parents can relate to it. The exhibit features 50 works of Maurice Sendak along with the beautiful quotes of people who have been touched by the book, President. Barack Obama, Tom Hanks, Judy Bloom, Bill Clinton, and Whoopi Goldberg, quite a cross-section. And as you'll see in the exhibit, director Spikes Jones says, I would look at those pictures where Max's bedroom turns into a forest and there's something that felt like magic there. And so we have that magic here. There are people to thank, of course, Jessica Brown, our children's services coordinator who really heard about the exhibit, Deb Taylor, our student services coordinator, uh, who gave inspiration and support, and Ellen Reardon, who is our planning coordinator and just came back from China where she gave a speech in her role as president of the Association for Library Services to Children um, in about the Caldecott Award. But many of you know, that's right, uh-oh, because <laughs> this is the big one. Melissa provided the funds and said, yes, bring the exhibit. Jessica heard about it. Deb and, and Deb and Jessica went up to the New York public and they had an exhibit about children's books and they called and they said, we have to have this. Everybody was that. But then there was that one person who made it happen. And that's our own Graphic Jack. Now, you know, some of you know Judy Cooper, who works with Jack. She tries to supervise him. And she, I was looking at her face when this happened, and she's like, oh, we'll never be able to do timesheets again. I can tell. But the creativity and the imagination of Jack, who took the funds that he had and made his vision. And he came to me and he said, you know, I think I can make a book come alive. I can make an experience for children of all ages and abilities, children who are, have challenges, a child in a wheelchair. I want a child that can't see to hear noise. I want this to be something that every child, no matter what, can do. And so we thank you, Jack, for unleashing your talent and your imagination, I think, Maury Sendak would be proud of you. I thought it couldn't get any more special, but one more thing. 
We have another special friend of the library, and I must admit a pretty regular patron of the library, who promises she's going to bring her daughter Sophia, who had other plans tonight. But please welcome our biggest supporter, Mayor Stephanie rollins Blake. Dr. Hayden, I can't thank you enough for the kind introduction and for your remarkable work here uh, at the Pratt. Uh, I said it before, it's only Baltimore that would have the audacity to throw a, a 20, was it 20th anniversary party for you? 20th anniversary party, it was like, what, almost a thousand people there? <laughs> In what other city does you do a thousand people show up to say congratulations and 20, happy 20th anniversary to the librarian? <laughs> But that's what's special about Baltimore. Uh, we know that we have a uh, head of the library who absolutely rocks. She makes books cool, and she has helped me to raise a reader. I, when I think about my daughter's, my experience here growing up, I know many of you have similar experiences. You can remember the times that you've come over the years. When I think about uh, my introduction of my daughter Sophia to the library and her love for reading, I think one of the the proudest things you can do as a parent, yes, you want to raise a smart child, a compassionate child, but to raise a reader, someone who has that thirst for, for knowledge and loves books, I just take it as a point of pride as a mom. And you have helped me do that with your work. And I would be remiss if I did not wish a belated birthday to your lovely mother, Colleen. <laughs> She won't tell us how old. I'm just teasing. I'm teasing, but you should be proud as well. All right, I am honored to be here with you. I had to stop by uh, to support uh, this incredible exhibit and the work that is being done. Uh, Maurice Sendak was an artist, a poet, a teacher, a philosopher, but most importantly to generations of children, he was a friend. And tonight we celebrate the transformative work of this visionary author and illustrator. I got to see the exhibit. I don't know if all of you got a chance to see it, but we not only have uh, original works of uh, Maurice Sendak himself, but also stunning work from Micah students inspired by Sendak, as well as breathtaking scale renditions of Max's bedroom. I don't know how comfortable the bed was, but it looked beautiful. I wish mine was made as well. Uh, we have the bedroom, the wild forest, and the boat, as Dr. Hayden said, from the classic where the, where the wild things are. I could not tell you how proud I am. When we do it in Baltimore, we do it right. And graphic Jack, or just Jack, as I call you, <laughs> inside joke. Uh, <laughs> you are so talented, and I'm so proud to be here to support you. You have such a vision, and you know I'm a, one of your biggest fans. I think you have made Baltimore proud, the Pratt proud, and hopefully the Sendak family proud as well with this exhibit. And I cannot wait to bring my daughter here, and to, and hopefully my crazy picture that I took with the little with the thing on Facebook. I mean, on I don't know where it's going to end up. But, uh, Dr. Hayden says, meet the press. I hope not. <laughs> but I couldn't resist. You know, you get to put 
put your little face through and, you know, take a picture as, as, ma- as yeah. So I can't wait to bring my daughter and to tell all of her friends and hope that they enjoy it as well. I hope you get a chance to, uh, to, come, to, to look at it this evening, come back and look at it. And I want to thank the uh, other members of the cultural community here in Baltimore for supporting this event this evening. Have fun. Thank you very much. Thank you, Madam Mayor, and we know you'll be back with Sophia to see the exhibit soon. I also want to just give a special shout out to our Enoch Pratt Free Library board members who are here and led by our wonderful Pat Lasher, board members, and former board members and everything. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. And now to our two special guests. We have two award-winning authors here tonight. Now, Arthur Yorix, as I mentioned, is a Caldecott Medal award-winning author for his book, Hey Al. I mentioned the Caldecott, but I didn't say that one. He's working on a new children's book and a new and a nonfiction work about his years of friendship with Maurice Sendak. And Steve Brezzo is the man behind this remarkable exhibit that's been touring the country since last year. He's also an author, critic, curator, museum director, and producer in a career that has ranged from working with the Muffets to collaborating with Dr. Seuss. So please welcome to Baltimore and the Pratt Library, Arthur Urex and Steve Rizzo. Thank you. Thank you all for uh, coming out this evening. Arthur and I were talking on the, on the train coming out here, and we said that probably the best thing we could do is just chat with you a little bit about our relationship with Maurice Sendak, uh, Arthur's collaboration with him, uh, his long collaboration with him, and my... Uh, I'm going to spend a little time talking about a very remarkable night that I spent uh, in 1986 with Dr. Seuss and Maurice Sendak, the only time we ever got together, the three of us on a stage and had a chat about their work and their relationship. And in that evening, Maurice talked about what the wild things are really is all about. But anyway, Arthur, you were involved with Maurice in many projects, uh, from dance and theater pieces to actual books he collaborated on. Yeah, Maurice and I... Uh, we're old, old friends, and we did several books together. We founded the Night Kitchen Theater together, um, actually preceded by an ill-fated time of the Sundance Children's Theater with Robert Redford for a time, and then that became the Night Kitchen Theater. We did a ballet together for Palabolus, and um, the last collaboration we did was a few years ago was Maurice's one and only pop-up book called Mommy, um, which some of you know or have seen, which is really wonderful. It's a tour de force by Maurice. Uh, but we go way back, um, actually earlier than your story, so I don't know if you want to start with yours. No, then, please, go ahead. Uh, I met Maurice in 19, uh, 44 years ago, and all because of a poodle a very large standard poodle. Um, the reason of, because of that was that I was living at home uh, 
uh, born in New York, living in Queens, desperate to get out of my parents' house. I'm the youngest of three kids. Uh, for some reason, I, I, was, uh, I, I never had children's books when I was a kid. Uh, I, didn't know what, I didn't know who Maurice Sendak was when I was a kid. And there was an article in the New York Times Magazine section that had a picture of him and described his studio and the literature that he liked, all of which was 19th century literature. I was a precocious reader. Um, that's all I read when I was a kid was, was comic books and the Brontes. And, um, <laughs> and so I was very intrigued by this very strange man, at least in the picture, um, who drew and... and um, it's funny, my, my mother went to Pratt, which has nothing to do with this, but has, it's an art school in Brooklyn. Um, and so I was around art when I was a kid, and I was a musician as a kid, and, and so the arts were part of my life at an early age. But still, in my parents being who they were and um, wanted me, you know, the last thing they wanted me to do was go into the arts. Um, but it was too late. I was already for formed in high school. And I had this notion, which was totally ridiculous, this strange fantasy that if I met Maurice Sendak, I somehow would be able to move out of my parents' house. Uh, it's totally nonsensical. Um, I, was, I, I, ran, I, I didn't run away to the circus in Florida. It was too, lo too, too far. I ran away to Manhattan to a theater company when I was all of 17 years old. Um, after uh, three weeks at Juilliard. And uh, I was bringing a friend to this class that I was taking in, in theater. And, I, and in these days, you have to understand this is 44 years ago, they actually printed where Maurice lived in the article, which was on 9th Street in, 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 uh, in the village in New York. And... Um, I said to my friend, who I grew up with, an old dear friend, that, you know, on the way to this class, I think I'm going to knock on Maurice Sendak's door. And by this time, I, I was in, interested in the theater, but I, I really wanted to be a short story writer. For adults, nothing to do with kids. And he looked at me and said, you're absolutely out of your mind. You can't do that. And of course, being who I was at the time, the more he said that, the more I said, we're definitely going to do this. And the one thing is, that I had told my friend that this particular class, this theater class, is if you were 30 seconds late, the director would lock the door and you would be locked out of the class. You could not be late. So here we are on the subway in New York, which had wicker seats at that time, which dates me. Um, and I'm saying, no, we're going to first stop at 9th Street and go to this class. I said, you're going to be late, you're going to be late. No, no, no. I, I said, we, we, we get to 9th Street. And... I said, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea. And now he said, you, sh you, you dragged me all the way to 9th Street. We're doing it. I said, well, I don't know. We walked down the block. There was his front door. Um, there was a row of buzzers. His name was on the bell. To this day, I do not recall ever touching that bell, but I was going down the list of names until I saw his, and all of a sudden the door opened and there was Maurice. I have to describe the scene. This was the, you know, the 60s had just ended. I not only had hair, it was out to here. <laughs> My friend equally, we were these two short guys, I was about the same size, um, looking like out of 
you know, out of the maniac land. And the door opens, and Maurice's jaw drops. And I, I have no idea what I actually said, because it was sort of like the exorcist. My mouth was moving, and things were coming out of my mouth, which I don't remember. But I said something to the effect of, I, you know, I, I, I read this article about you, and I thought it would be a good idea to meet you. And, and he looked at it. I mean, I don't, I don't really remember what exactly I said, but he was very polite. Um, he never opened the door. <laughs> But he did say, I'm in the middle of a book. Um, uh, call me up on the telephone if you'd like to speak. The book then was in the night kitchen. He was working on that book. And I said, thank you very much. I made it to the class on time that I was headed. And I said, well, I did that. Yeah, I'm never going to call him. Up. Well, a month later, I got into a big fight with my parents. And I said, well, I'm going to call Maurice Sendak. Okay, again, those days, there was no such thing as caller ID. There was no such thing as an iPhone. There was, not, there was a, a phone that you actually had to put your finger in and dial. Well, I did that, and because Maurice's number was in the phone book. Um, I can't believe I actually remember. It started with GR. They had letters in those days, too. And I dialed his number... And I was, of course, one of those fools and maniacs that got nervous and freaked out, and I just hung the phone up. And each time, even though there was no caller ID, he had no idea, I always said, oh, gosh, I hope he doesn't think it was me. (laughs) Now, the poodle part. Very large standard poodle never barked, ever. Strange. So I did this calling, hanging up bit, maybe three or four times over the course of six months. One time, I was, had a huge fight with my parents, and I ran to the phone to call and do this thing, and I call up, and I do the same thing, and it's going to be the same routine, except all of a sudden, my poodle starts barking. And I thought, isn't that strange? I've never heard her bark. I mean, she was three years old. I'd never heard her bark. And as I'm thinking these thoughts... Hello, 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 on the other side. Hello, hello. And Maurice, I go, oh my God. He, now I am convinced he knows it's me, which of course is ridiculous because he probably didn't even remember who, who I was. This was like six months later. And I felt I couldn't hang up the phone. So I said, hello. Um, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, a friend of mine and, and I, said, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. I guess the way we looked kind of, painted the picture. And anyway, what what ended up happening was many, many questions on the phone, which is kind of a disguised interview underneath what seemed like a conversation. And he was asking me a lot of questions. Every question, I was determined to lie. Um, Because he would ask me these things, and I thought, oh, you know, I don't know what the right answer is, and I don't know. My brain doesn't work too fast, and I would blurt out the truth. And this went on and on and on for about 15 minutes. Um, asked me what I read and this thing and that thing and on and on. And then finally he said to me, have you ever read Winnie the Pooh? What should I say? What should I say? I said, yes, because I, I, I did. I had read Winnie the Pooh. He said, what did you think? 
And what seemed like about four and a half years went in my brain. It was probably all of about a quarter of a second. I blurted out the truth. I said I hated that book. There wasn't more than maybe a, a microsecond where I heard Maurice's voice say to me, why don't you come over for lunch next Tuesday? <laughs> I did. I had a tuna fish sandwich and a ginger ale. And for the next 38 years, we were um, good friends in various decades, best friends. Um, he uh, was an extraordinary man, an extraordinary artist. Um, most of the time, a pretty good friend. And uh, indeed, he finished The Night Kitchen, the book, In the Night Kitchen. We took a walk after he handed it in. And I, I'll never forget this, one last anecdote before I hand it over to Steve. Um, it was in New York City, around the village, around 9th Street. It was one of those October nights, not like tonight, but sort of frosty and crystal clear in the city. And um, in those days, unfortunately, buildings are now different than, not, I mean now, but back then, when you walked on Fifth Avenue and around that street and you looked up, you could see a very clear image of the, of the Empire State Building. And um, this particular really stark, clear, dark night, it was about 11.30 at night, we were taking a walk, and we, I looked up, and he looked up, and the Empire State Building was lit up, as it used to be, just bathed in white light, and there was this full, beaming moon right next to it. And if you go to that book in the night kitchen, and take a look at that milk bottle and that sky, that was Maurice's homage to New York and that building and what most people now refer to as that Sendakian moon. Um, and that was the start of a long journey of our friendship. Steve. Yeah, and, and Maurice always considered Arthur one of his best collaborators. Uh, I have a couple stories, quick stories to tell. I, I was lucky enough to be born in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, uh, in New Hope, in what was called the Genius Belt. It certainly had nothing to do with me, but it was, there were many, many people from Leonard Bernstein to Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein lived there, and to the left of my parents' property lived Pearl Buck, and to the right lived James Michener. And I was lucky enough as a kid uh, to be kind of adopted by these people who would loan me books and, you know, bring things over to read. And it was many years later that I was sitting in Maurice's studio with Tony Kushner uh, and uh, Spike Jones and Jim Henson. And they were all discussing uh, doing a live version of Where the Wild Things Are. You know that ultimately Jim Henson did those large figures, the large puppets, if you will, uh, that looked very much like the Sesame Street figures uh, for, for the film. And in that evening, we were drinking Diet Pepsis, talking about books and things. And uh, Tony asked uh, Maurice, tell him five things that people might not know about him. 
And to this day, those five things have stuck in my memory. First of all, you may know, because you're probably all aficionados, Maurice Sendak was obsessed with Mickey Mouse as a child. In fact, when he was six years old, he wrote a letter to Walt Disney the day after he saw Fantasia, because he went to see the Mickey Mouse cartoon that went before Fantasia, and he wrote to Walt Disney and said, I want to work for you. And he got a letter back from Walt Disney and said, well, when you're ready, send me some drawings. And he kept that letter, and he collected everything Mickey Mouse. In fact, when he died, uh, there were over 7,000 Mickey Mouse figurines, clocks, bookcases. He had them all over his desk. He loved that figure. In fact, there's one of him that he drew of himself with Mickey Mouse as a middle... He shared his birthday with Mickey. That's why he... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, his birthday was Mickey Mouse's birthday, the day that Mickey Mouse was created. Another thing was that he was actually discovered. He had no formal training. In fact, when he was in high school, uh, he went to work for a comic book company that was two blocks from his home and colored in a comic strip called Mutt and Jeff. And he was the colorist for that and did a couple of the comic books, etc. Uh... He also was a very shy kid, sat in the back of the class, was a st- class, was a stutterer, and did not like to stand up in front of the class. And in junior high school, the final project in his English class, each student had to stand up and talk about their impressions of Macbeth, which was a school pro- class project. And the teacher, who was very observant and very kind and very intuitive, said to Maurice, Maurice, you don't have to stand up in front of the class, but you're going to be required to do a report on, on Macbeth, you go ahead and draw it. You do it with drawings. And he did eight drawings of Macbeth that she hung in the classroom. And many, 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 many years later, we found her grandchildren who had kept those drawings in a trunk and with some of her personal notes to Maurice saying, you're a very intuitive young man, very skilled. You need to focus on drawing because you express yourself this way. And that elementary school teacher's grandchildren loaned them to us, and they're in the exhibition for the first time. And you'll, you'll see them in the exhibitions, that kind of cool stuff. He was discovered doing the Christmas windows at FAO Schwartz. And a book publisher who became his book publisher, Ursula Nordstrom, was passing by, and she had a book that had just uh, been written called Our Friend the Adam, and it needed to be illustrated. And she walked past him working, doing the windows where he was doing some sketches of moonbeams and other, and other figures. And she said, young man, do you, are you an artist? And he said, well, I, I'd like to be. And she said, come see me tomorrow morning. Well, to make a long story, very short. Uh, she hired him on the spot and became his editor for the rest of his life. And she was demanding. She was uh, very tough with him, but he loved her dearly. In 1978, I was working with Dr. Seuss, who was both a neighbor and a colleague of mine, and I was curating his collection, working with him, doing a, a, working on a book with him, and preparing a retrospective exhibition of his. And one day, I said to him, "Ted, his name was Ted Geisel. I said, "Ted, who was the one artist, the one children's book artist that you really contemporary that you really revere?" And he, he was a pipe smoker. He put his pipe down. And he said, "Sendak, Sendak, Sendak." And I said, well, you know, I've, I've just, you know, he just did where the wild things are, and I hear it's going to be a smash. Why don't I do an exhibition of his work? Would you help me with that? And he said, absolutely. I'll, I'll give you the money to do that. Let's do that. And together, Ted and I curated the first 
Maurice Sendak exhibition that toured around the country and it followed the growth of where the wild things are. Now, the reason I tell you that story was in 1986 when I did the retrospective, I thought I would call Maurice and ask him for his comments about Dr. Seuss. And the three of us got together to sit down and do some audio recordings and one of the afternoons I said, why don't we get together on a stage and the three of us talk about your work? And the only time in their lives they got together was one night in 1986. We advertised it in a little newsletter. And we had about 2,500 people show up at an auditorium that sat like 800. And we, in those days, there was no projection TV, so we put loudspeakers outside and people could write questions. And one of the questions that came in, that I kept the transcript of that. I kept my notes from that evening. And one of the questions was... Uh, Mr. Sendak, what are the origins of where the wild things are? And I want to read you what Maury said that evening. And then don't let me forget, as I close this, this out, I want to tell you the story about Hans Christian Andersen. So, Maurice, what are the origins of where the wild things are? Maurice said, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer. Well, let me, let me tell you its origins. It's brief. I had done a series of books back in those days in the 50s. You couldn't do a picture book unless you'd done a number of books that paid off somewhat or at the very least showed that you had more talent. And then you could move on to the next. There, there wasn't much money to be made back then, and I was dead broke. I had earned my 10-year apprenticeship doing any number of books, you know, My Friend the Adam and Dick and Jane or whatever. Now I could do a book. And my editor's name was Ursula Nordstrom, and she, without equivocation, was the best. I loved this woman. She was torrential, passionate, and she could spot talent 10 miles away. I had no education. I'd never been to art school. My drawing was so crude, I had shines on shoes like in Mutt and Jeff and Walt Disney. And she saw through this monstrous crudity of mine and cultivated me, really made me grow up. And then it was time to do my own picture book. And I came to her with a title that was Where the Wild Horses Are. And she loved this. And it was so poetic and evocative, and she gave me a contract based on where the wild horses are. And then it turned out, uh, after some very few months to her chagrin and anger, I didn't know how to draw horses. The whole book would have to be full of horses to make sense. I can't draw a damn horse. And Dr. Seuss leaned over and said, you know, I can't draw them either. What's their problem? And Sendak said, Ted, you can draw horses. And Ted said, they look like they came from Jupiter when I drew them. Well, that was my problem, says Maurice. I couldn't draw the damn things. And when I tried a number of things, I can remember the acetone. She said, Maurice, for God's sakes, what can you draw? Okay, because she was investing in a full-color picture book. That was an enormous thing back then. That cost a lot of money. And I thought, well, I, I, I can draw things. I, I can draw things. Could be anything I could draw without negotiating, things I can't draw. And then, and then here's how it happened. Let me tell you how that book came about. We were, we were at, someone in my family had died. My brother, sister, and I were sitting shiva, the Jewish ceremony. And all we did was laugh hysterically. I remember our relatives used to come from the old country, those few who got out before the gate closed, God bless them, all on my mother's side, and we detested them. How we detested them. The cruelty of children. You know, kids are tough. Kids are tough. And these people didn't speak English, and they were unkempt. They smelled bad. Their teeth were horrifying. Nose unraveling. The, the hair was unraveling out of their nose, unraveling out of their noses. They pick you up and kiss you, and they go, ah, we could eat you up. And, you know, they would eat anything, anything. They eat everything in the house, anything. 
And so they're the wild things. And when I remember them, the discussion with my brother and my sister, how we laughed about those people who we, of course, we grew up to love them very much, I decided to render them as the wild things. My aunts and my uncles and my cousins. And that's who they are. So Maurice, the the wild things are your extended... For God's sakes, they're my relatives. And, and one last story. I, I was working over in Copenhagen, and I had been hired over there by the, the royal family to do an, a big anniversary exhibition of their collection of Hans Christian Andersen's original drawings. You know, he cut silhouettes out of paper. That was one of his real art forms. Hundreds and hundreds of silhouettes of the little match girl and other things. And he would tell these stories to children, and he would cut these silhouettes out. And uh, it just became a big thing. It was going to be held at the palace, and we did this giant inflatable book that you walked into and you saw these cutouts. So I go on Danish television, which is broadcast all through Europe one night for this big event with the princess and the queen and the king, and we're all sitting there. And they asked me to introduce the exhibition, and I said, well, you know, Hans Christian Andersen, let me begin with this little film clip. And I showed the uh, Danny Kay going, wonderful, wonderful, Copenhagen. And there was this cold response. And I saw the telephones lighting up all around, and the queen was going like this. I, what, what did I do? Well, the fact of the matter is that people have a fantasy about children's book artists, that they, are, that they love kids, that they're facile, that they're charming, they love having kids around. I've never met a children's book artist that likes kids that much. (laughs) I've never met a children's book artist that likes to talk to kids. And in fact, of the hundred or so that I've worked with, most of them work alone, send their work out, they understand kids, they respect kids, but they're really not kid people in the way that you would think Hans Christian Andersen, the way Danny Kaye uh, depicted him. In fact, Hans Christian Andersen didn't like kids and never really got together with them very much. You ever want to create sparks? You put Dr. Seuss in a classroom full of 40 kids with cat in the hat hats on, and he whispers under his breath, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) And Arthur, you knew Maurice better than anybody. He's a tough guy. Uh, Very tough guy. Um, There are stories that I could tell you that I can't tell you. (laughs) <laughs> Let's put it that way. If you ever but, saw the movie The Last Dance that Arthur is in with Maurice Sendak, if you have not seen this documentary, watch it on Netflix tonight. You want to see two artists struggling. This was a ballet with Palabolus that Arthur and Maurice were choreographing based on a story that the two of them had written, Maurice had, had illustrated, trying to get this piece together. You will see how this guy was. Very tough. Yeah, that was a, uh, I mean, to give you a, and if you actually do see the movie, and it's worth seeing, it's a very interesting film, although it, it, um, even in its uh, uh, toughness, it glazes over some of the real, and I'll give you a couple of real scoops about it. Um, Palabolus, and do you know that modern dance company? They've been around for a long time. Um, They're the kind that, you know, that that people can bend over and touch the toes with the back of their head. I mean, they're, they're like made out of rubber. And um, a, a good company, but they're run by three, they were run by three choreographers, each one um, as a trio. And that's already a prescription for disaster. 
but they got a grant, and this is how these things work. You should really know the truth. They got a grant, and the only reason they got the grant was that they agreed to work with people outside of those three people, which is the first time they've ever done that in their history. And for some reason, they contacted Maurice and me, um, thinking that they would do a fairy tale. Uh, we were in the midst, Maurice and I, of developing an opera called Brundabar, with Tony Kushner, as a matter of fact, writing the libretto. And the opera itself is only 20 minutes long. So I had this crazy idea of, well, why don't we, why don't we pair it with something we do with Palabolus? Um, they immediately said no. Uh, they refused to take the suggestion of who the composer was, who wrote the music for the opera, and on and on and on. So after six months, the whole thing died. But somehow they wanted that grant, so they came back to us and agreed to do a piece um, with, uh, using the mu music of Hans Krause, who wrote the music for the, uh, the opera, Brundabar. And it was going to be a, 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 a paired evening. Um, well, we got into the studio, and I won't spoil the film uh, story, the documentary, but um, it was a bloody nightmare. Uh, and you'll see Maurice in all, well, in most of his glory. The only thing you won't see are the car rides that he and I took um, as we went from the studio back to um, his place, and, and I was a neighbor of his at the time, so we lived near each other. And those conversations in the car rides um, are unprintable. Luckily, there was uh, not reality television. Yeah, there back was no camera days. in the car, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but somehow, amazingly, and it goes to the, it speaks to the artistic sense of Maurice, really. Um, I mean, I was trying to stick it out. One, because I, I knew Maurice so well then, and I knew he really wanted to do this. And two, um, I really wanted this opera to take place. And this was one way of creating a full evening. So I was trying to keep it all together. And, um, uh, but in the end, uh, the, the ballet that we created, this full-length piece, was glorious, really glorious, and I give credit to the to that Palabolus company, which was un, which is unusual. You know, and we're going to close here. I know that the time is short. Most children's book illustrators do not work well outside of their medium, and I give you I give you firsthand experience. You know, Dr. Seuss never wanted to make a live movie in his life after he made the Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T. And if you've ever seen that movie, you can see why. It was a disaster. He did not like working with live actors. He did not like Hollywood. And he had won three Oscars by that time because during World War II, he was the creator of those sad sack cartoons that they used to train troops about, you know, cleanliness and hygiene and loading your rifle and all that stuff. He'd worked with Frank Capra in, in the military creating those, those cartoons. But he never had any success. And the only thing he kind of liked was the Grinch that stole Christmas that he did with Chuck Jones. And Chuck Jones was like a children's book. I mean, he got it. They had a, they had a, but if Ted were alive today to see the movies that have been made of his books, he would, it, it's impossible. And that happens a lot with artists. Maurice was the same way. The really rosy cartoons were really, the one, the, the animated film was okay. Uh, the music was fine. Uh, Carol did a fine job with the music, but he was never really enamored of, of that uh, particularly strongly. I don't think he liked Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, I think he felt it was stilted. Uh, he didn't like the figures that came out of it. 
uh, and and most of the things. By the way, somebody was mentioning earlier today that they they watched some of the cartoons that had been shown on Sesame Street with uh, that Maurice had done. Uh, next time you're at a cocktail party with friends, you might want to tell ask them who narrated those cartoons, whose voice was that in those cartoons. Any of you know? On Sesame Street, the Maurice Sendak. It was Jim Henson. He was doing the he was doing the voices for those. Look, it's, it's late. I know you're all, uh, it's, it's, it's a weeknight. Let's take, I, yeah, yeah, go take ahead. One, yeah. We'll take a couple of questions. Just a couple of questions. I, I'd be totally remiss to give you a 15-second Wild Things anecdote because I think it came up in once in, in, your, in, in the quote here, but I have a different quote because Maurice was asked so many times, what happens to Max when he grows up? What happens right. to Max when he grows up? And Maurice detested that question. He absolutely detested it. So 1987, he and I found ourselves at Sundance, um, Redford's Institute in Utah, and it's filled with all kinds of, you know, name people and all this kind of stuff. And lo and behold, there was sitting um, uh, a man named Jim Simpson. Jim Simpson is the um, husband of Sigourney Weaver and a brilliant director and happens to be a spit, at least this was 25 years ago, a spitting image of Max. So Maurice comes, meets him for the first time, we're at a table and we're both sitting there, and I, I seem, I can, I know Maurice, Maurice is like, like this, like his face is going like a mile a minute, he's not saying a word, he's staring, staring, and staring at Jim. And finally Jim whips around, we hadn't been introduced, and he's like, what, you know, like, what's with you? What's with, just, you, 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 you look exactly like Max. And it became a big joke, you know, that he, and he really did in those days look exactly like Max. And for about two years after that, Maurice loved, loved when someone asked him, like, what have happened to Max? Well, he grew up and married Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> Prior to that, he used to say he's in an asylum. <laughs> Sure, one or two questions. By the way, do you know what his favorite book was? Maurice's favorite book of his oeuvre? Do you know what it was? In the Night Kitchen. Because it evoked all of his going to the movies with his sister and watching Laurel and Hardy films, etc. Okay, a couple of quick questions. We're going to let you go. Come on. Like a class I teach. Let's go. You have questions. I wish I had asked him... We're not letting you go until you ask two yeah, questions. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So okay. Here we go. Always in the back. Yes. Did, did he do some work with theater um, where he did some design work? Or oh, very um, much could so. you talk about that a little bit? Very much so. Did, you, did any of you see the Nutcracker that he did? With the Pacific Ballet, Warner Brothers bought it. You can see it every year now, the Nutcracker. It's really quite spectacular. It's kind of creepy, in, but it's spectacular. In the 80s, Maurice was a little bit fed up with books, to be honest. After he did Outside Over There, which was formed, in his mind, um, a trilogy from Wild Things, In the Night Kitchen, and Outside Over There. And that, was, that last book was very, very tough on him. It was a very... Um, uh, private, personal book of, uh, for him, and it was very tough. And he really wanted to have nothing to do with books. And um, a couple of people were bugging him to get involved in theater design. 
and he kind of slid into it a little bit with trepidation, but then ended up absolutely loving it, and formed a long-standing collaboration with a director named Frank Grissaro. And they did many, many operas together, Magic Flute, Hansel and Gretel. Um, he designed the Pacific Northwest Ballet's uh, Nutcracker, which Carol Ballard, one of the great unsung directors in movie history who did The Black Stallion and Never Cry Wolf and Fly Away Home, um, he directed Maurice's Nutcracker. Uh, and indeed, that led to, in 1990, where I was trying to figure out how to bring family theater to New York, which, believe it or not, didn't have one, and Maurice was contacted by Sundance, and we, in 87, actually, we joined forces and started a theater company together. So he was very much loved the theater and loved designing for it um, and did many, many productions over the course of many years. Okay, one more question. There it is. Ladies and gentlemen, the final question for the car. Final question. Final question. <laughs> One thing that I noticed as we were um, walking around is many of the illustrations um, said from Maurice Sendek to a fan. And I'm oh, curious as to how so many fans got these amazing illustrations. Let me, let me tell you a quick story about that. Uh, Maurice Sendak was once asked, you know, you've got so much criticism and so much written about you. What's, the fa- what's your favorite critique? What's your... Many years ago, he got a note scrawled on a piece of lined paper, school paper, from one of those red Indian tablets. Remember those things? They used to smell like wood. And, you know, they... and it said, Dear uh, Mr. Sendak, I love you. Please send me a picture. And it was from a little boy, a little five-year-old. So Maurice got a postcard and scribbled a wild thing on it and sent it to him. About three months later, he got this lovely envelope, and he opened it up, and it was a letter from the mother. And she said, Dear Mr. Sendak, I want to thank you so much for sending that little drawing to Eric. In fact, he loved it so much, he ate it. And Maurice said, that's the best review I ever got in my life. Thank you. Thank you, Steve and Arthur. You've really brought Maurice Sendak here with us tonight. Thank Thank you, you, Steve and Arthur. And thank all of you. And thank you, Melissa. Melissa.